We now return to our series on 2 Samuel to find David amazed at God's promise to establish his kingdom under his leadership as the lawgiver of Israel. Our all coming reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 7, beginning in verse 4, through the end of the chapter. And it came to pass that that night, that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shall thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy house, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own. And move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I command the judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Then went the king David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. 
And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore, now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. Matthew writing to us in Matthew in chapter 5, the first 12 verses, as Christ is teaching his people, his disciples, and the multitude. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! And be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted the prophets which were before you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now to his utter astonishment, David is now promised kingship over God's people and the kingdom of God as his royal stewardship. He was genuinely astonished that God would take him from the sheep coat, that God would take this poor shepherd boy and elevate him to this place, this position of great responsibility and great power. This was a covenantal responsibility, a divine covenantal responsibility, which was given to David with generational prospects attached. But the success of David would only be if David would be responsible. Provided that David would keep the law faithfully, David would be successful. If David was faithful in his duty as a steward of God's kingdom, God would bestow his blessings upon David's entire generation, his entire dynasty. And that's a fundamental principle. It's a divine principle for all time and all situations to the extent that the law of God, that covenant law of God is obeyed, blessings will follow. Now, of course, the opposite is also true. To the extent that the law of God is violated or set aside or diluted or negated, curses must follow. And this is true for every element of civilization. It is a fundamental divine principle. Not only the family, church, and state, but all aspects and all institutions of life will have to follow this principle. Obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. And this is why biblical leadership is essential if God is to grant his blessings. A biblical leader who is like David at this point in David's life is essential if that leadership position is to be blessed. But now we have to ask a question. What marks a leader legitimate? How do we vet a leader? What marks a leader legitimate, according to the scripture, is how they view and apply the law of God. 
God's intention is that all leaders, every aspect of leadership, and those that would be leaders, observe to keep all that the law requires. If they do not, they will be set aside, they will be cursed, and things will not be well with them. There will be frustration, there will be angst, there will be all of these things that, that, that rip an individual apart because they have not followed the law of God. And this is why all would-be leaders are to write out in their own handwriting, as it was in the days of Israel, the law of God. God was instructing all of the leaders of Israel, especially the kings, to build for themselves their own copy of God's law in their handwriting. This legal journal would then be used throughout the king's reign in order to keep him faithful to the law of God as he ruled and judged the people of his realm. There was no Bible then. There was no, nothing that he could just refer to. He had to write it out. And such was the commandment concerning the kings in Deuteronomy in chapter 17. Notice the comprehensive nature of these instructions. In Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14 and following, we read this. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it and dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee, thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses for himself, as the Lord hath said unto you. Ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes, to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now this was the basic requirement that the king was supposed to adhere to. The penal law was also a part of what he was supposed to write out as well. So he would be proficient in adjudicating various issues that might come up in order for the king to be well-versed in all that he was required to navigate in his realm, he had to know the difference between right and wrong, and that came out of the law of God. So he had to know the law of God. And then he had to also meditate and study the law of God day and night so that he would, out of his own mind, after reading it in his own handwriting and reflecting upon it, he would know what to do in situations that required adjudication. Of course, during ancient Israel, there, there were no really Bibles that he could refer to, so that's why he had to write it out. He had to write out the law, and it had to be read by him day and night. It also had to be read to the congregation each year by the priests. And so the king had to have his own copy of the law to refer to. We should have our own copy of the law to refer to. We should have our own copy of the law of God so that we are able to refer to it when needed. And you say to yourself, well, I have the Bible. Well, that's not how it works because the law of God is scattered throughout many of the books of the Old Testament. So should we not have a copy of the law of God in our possession? 
And now you're asking another question, I'm sure. Does the preacher, is he preaching because he wants us to do something that he didn't do himself? Or does the preacher have his own copy in an abbreviated form so that he can refer to the law of God at any time other than just reading the Bible? And the answer is absolutely yes. This is the law of God. Now, of course, it's very small type, which is why I had to rewrite it in bigger type. But this is what we all should have because it deals with everything in its category. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the other thing? And these things are very important for us to navigate our lives and to be able to counsel others in the navigation of their lives, especially those in high office. The piety and effectiveness of the king was determined by his obedience to the law of God, which called him into a right relationship with Yahweh in behalf of his people and the kingdom. The king had to be committed to God and his law in order to be qualified as God's leader. Without understanding the law of God, how could a man be qualified as a leader of the people? So as a result of the commandment of Deuteronomy 17, we can conclude that there was a Deuteronomic, a Deuteronomic relationship, a relationship which coupled the king with the work of Deuteronomy so that he and the law of God would be in harmony with one another. That was the relationship that the king had to have with God because he had a relationship with the law of God, which was the mind of God. It was a relationship that David embraced. We know this throughout the scriptures. David embraced this relationship because God had commanded the shepherd king to embrace that relationship. And we know this to be true because when we ever read of David's psalms and how each of David's psalms reflect Moses' law of Deuteronomy, even though later we find that David strayed from that diligence, he was nevertheless sensitive to his calling as God's man, which led him to sincerely repent of his sins, all because he understood the law of God. Consider for a moment the strong connection between Psalm 1 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. When carefully reviewing Psalm 1, which is the beginning of the Psalter of David, when carefully reviewing Psalm 1, we see a link between God's law and the king in the same way that there is an explicit link between the law and the king in Deuteronomy 17. Note the opening verse of Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 should be very familiar to each and every one of us. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight, and this is David writing, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Theologian Jamie Grant observes this. He says, Psalm 1 celebrates the role of the Torah. Now the word Torah means law. The role of the law in the life of the believer. It contains imagery of stability and fruitfulness and the blessing of God upon all those who would reject evil and live by the Torah. By writing this psalm, David is acknowledging that in order to be a successful ruler, a successful leader, let me put it this way, a successful father, a successful mother, a successful individual, in order to be a successful leader, one had to abide by the Torah. 
Success was measured by fidelity. Success was measured by the blessing of God because of a fidelity of the individual, which would indicate that that, that ruler was maintaining an obedient posture before God. The evidence of blessedness would be detailed in Deuteronomy 28. Do this, be blessed, do that, and you're cursed. So the evidence of blessedness would be detailed very clearly in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 28. Now David's Psalm 18 and his Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, all of them written by David, is further proof that David understood the connection between the king and the law as revealed in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, in Deuteronomy especially. Notice in Psalm 18, in Psalm 18, David praises God for his merciful deliverance from his enemies. He then gives the reason why God had blessed him. Notice what it says, beginning in verse 21. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. And that's the reason why now my enemies have been thwarted. And I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgment, in other words, he's following his own remedy of Psalm 1. I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. In other words, I was always meditating upon his judgments. They were always before me. I was thinking about them all the time. And I did not put away his statutes from me. He was thinking about the law of God. That's all he was doing. This is what God says. This is what I'm going to do. This is what God says. This is what I'm going to do. This is what God doesn't say. This is what God tells me not to do. And therefore, I won't do it. He's meditating. He's following his own counsel of Psalm 1. Now in Psalm 19, David makes this declaration about the Torah. Beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold. I would tell a congressman... The law of the Lord is more to be desired than the congressional documents, the congressional laws that you have drummed up out of your own mind, those positive laws that are, are so many of them anti-God. More to be desired than gold, much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them, notice, in keeping them, there's great reward. There's a blessing. In being obedient, it's a blessing. Later we read of David's magnum opus when he penned Psalm 119, whereupon, if you're very careful to observe, every single verse is a reference to the law of God in one sense or another. Note how David comprehensively refers to every aspect of the law. He uses terms like law or Torah. He uses words like testimonies, Precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments. He uses even the word word, which is symbolic of the law of God. David connects Psalm 119 with Psalm 1 with his opening statement. Notice what he says in Psalm 119 verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. It's the same language as Psalm 1. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. So all three of these psalms are called, by theologians today, the kingship psalms. All of them celebrate the law of God as the organizing principle 
of every aspect of life, especially in the area of kingly governance, which includes judgeship. So to deny that that the law of God is for men and nations today, in order to ensure that they are blessed of God, is to deny that God is the same yesterday and forever, and His law is absolute and eternal. David understood that. In fact, it was David's delight to observe and to do all that the law required. Notice in Psalm 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now ask yourself the question, what is your chief delight? What are you really, really delighting in? Is it the law of the Lord? And that challenges each and every one of us. What is our delight? And then if we can say that we delight in the law of the Lord, Do we delight in the law of the Lord so that we meditate upon it day and night as to do what God tells us to do? So this is a challenge to each and every one of us. Now so much was David's delight in the law of God that he thought upon it every moment of every day, day and night. And while this is an express reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as the blessed man, it is no less a kingship psalm for those that would be earthly leaders since all earthly kings are to fulfill their calling as ministers of God according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. And yet this is for all of us. Blessed is that man who walk in the counsel of the Lord. David repeats his delight in God's law also in Psalm 40 verse 8 and throughout Psalm 119 as we have seen. But notice Psalm 40 verse 8. I delight to do thy will. Not only am I meditating in in a delightful fashion, not only do I delight to meditate, I now delight to do what I've meditated upon. I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So by having the law in his heart, he was able to do what God had called him to do because it was his heartfelt passion. It was... David's intoxication. Psalm 119, verse 16. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Verse 24. Thy testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. Verse 35. Make me to go in the paths of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Psalm 119, verse 47. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. Verse 70 and 77. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. In Psalm 119, verse 174, David says, I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Over and over and over, he's testifying. This is what I love. I love the law of God. I love this. This is great. Uh, This is what I'm meditating upon. It is so important to me. Now, Paul himself was no stranger to David's love of the law, for he too expressed his love for God's Torah, which was to him also a delight in Romans 7.22. Notice what he says. He's, He's echoing David. And the reason why he's able to echo David is because the stamp of God was upon Paul's heart as it was upon David. They had the stamp of Christ upon them. Notice what Paul says in Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So Psalm 1 is the beginning of the entire songbook of the songs of Zion, and it is the beginning for a reason, because it sets the stage 
for the king's relationship to the law of God as it is found in the book of Deuteronomy. So let's consider just once again Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the yardstick, the measuring stick, by which a man tests his devotion to God and his law. Think about Psalm 1 as your test, because it sets forth a template for determining if one is sincerely devoted to Yahweh. Do you delight in the law of the Lord? Now what is interesting about the structure of Psalm 1 is that it borrows from the the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema of Israel, or or the hearing. The Shema means the hearing, the hearing of Israel. God wanted Israel to hear the law of the Lord. Hear ye Israel. Hear Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and He has one law. That's the point of the Shema. The Shema calls the people of God to follow Yahweh's law in all times with complete devotion. Shema, Israel, Adonai, Elonehu, Echad. The Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Notice, all thine heart, all thy soul, all thy might, and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart in order to delight upon them, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, provided you know what the law of God teaches, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, so that you can talk about the things of the law of God, as to apply them to the several situations of life, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. This is not a recommendation to the people of God. God never recommends anything. He commands everything. Note how throughout the day, the devotion of the Torah is to be constant. When you get up, when you lie down, when you walk here, when you do this, when you do that, when you're in your house, when you're not in your house, it's a constant devotion. In the same way as David admonishes in Psalm 1 where the devotion is through meditation day and night. And this is the basic formula for the man that would be blessed of God, especially if he is called as the leader of God's people. Consider the structure of Psalm 1 and Deuteronomy 6. In Psalm 1, David admonishes the man that would be blessed of God not to walk, stand, or sit in the counsel of the ungodly. Moses' pattern is almost the same but only in the positive sense of what one should do. Notice verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6. Notice the connection. Here's the point. The connection between Psalm 1 and all of the Psalms and the law of God. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, talking of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So here Moses adds the duty of communicating the things, not only the meditation about the things, but the communication of the things of the law of God, along with every aspect of life and every situation that you find yourself in, lying down, going in, going out, whatever. Commentator Patrick Miller makes this connection. Notice what he says. He says, The activity enjoined in Deuteronomy 6 expresses a constant and total commitment to the law of the Lord comparable to what is pronounced as the blessed way of the righteous in Psalm 1. We can then safely deduce that the concept of Psalm 1 has its origins in Deuteronomy's theology. Notice the connection, the king and the law, the king and the law. David is not the first of God's leaders to make the connection between leadership and law. 
Joshua 2 understood this important truth. Now, once Moses was dead, God tells Joshua this, Only be thou strong and very courageous, so that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Notice the first thing, Joshua now, the commander of Israel, the the leader of Israel, the first thing God tells him is, you need to do all that the law teaches. Turn not from it, from the right hand or to the left, so that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. In other words, if you obey, you'll prosper. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Notice where David's getting this from. And how important this this idea of, of chewing the cud, of meditating upon the law of God day and night, that thou mayest observe so that there's a reason, an end, a theological reason behind meditation. It's so that you would observe to do all that is written therein, for thou shalt make way thy prosperous if you do this. Then thou shalt have good success, he says. I learned just recently a woman was trying to memorize many, many passages of Scripture, And what she did to do that, to help her while she was taking a shower, she wrote the passages and she put it in a a Ziploc and put it on the wall so while she's showering, she she can recite it and remember it. Or while you're shaving, you post something on your mirror so you can't help but see the law of God in your own reflection. Meditation. It's a lost art, but it's something that David and the law of God is commanding us. Again, the connection between Torah, blessings, and success. Now, Adam was given the same commandment, the very same commandment. Obey and be blessed, rebel and be cursed. Adam's delight should have been in the law of the Lord, but obviously it was not. Rather, he was questioning, questioning whether the law was really true. How many people do you know today question whether the law is really something that is absolute and that we need to follow? You see, Adam failed to understand the relationship between law and his well-being in the garden. And as a result, he became the tail and no longer the head, no longer the ruler over God's creation because he questioned the veracity of God's law. And part of Adam's sin, which was passed down to his ungodly posterity, was their disdain, not their delight, but their disdain in the law of the Lord. And while we would expect this among the reprobate of the world, it's incredibly sorrow to see it so often within the church, among professing Christians, even among the ministers of the church, within the church, saying, no, 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 no law but love, no creed but Christ. No, the law was for Israel. We have another law. Well, what does that look like? If it is not the law of God, what does it look like? Knowing the details of Adam's fall as a failed leader, Moses is mindful to teach Israel the way of righteousness, which only can come by constant attention to the law of God. It is in this way that God's leaders are groomed, by meditating upon the law of God, by understanding what it means and how to apply it. Miller again points out this. He says, quote, The fundamental task of the leader of the people, therefore, is to exemplify and demonstrate true obedience to the Lord. For the sake of the well-being of both the dynasty and the kingdom, King and subjects share a common goal, to learn to fear the Lord. Yahweh expects the same obedience from the people and their leaders. So rather than being characteristic particular to the monarchy, these are characteristics extended to the whole community. It seems that the divine expectation is that appointed leaders 
must excel in the task of devotion to Yahweh as an example for all the people and that this expectation is not limited to kings alone, but to any, notice, but to any who would lead the people regardless of function, end quote. So we can't just say, well, that was for David and that was for Israel and that's for kings, congressmen and presidents. No, you and me and everyone that calls himself a Christian because we lead in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Therefore, we must be meditating upon the things of God, the law of God. Now, the Psalter's connection to the law of Deuteronomy is not only an Old Testament principle. It is brought very clearly into the New Testament by the divine lawgiver himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew 5, Jesus spells out the characteristics of those that would be blessed of God. Notice, he opens his mouth and he teaches, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on and so forth. And he goes through all of the, the character traits of an individual person. Now note how each of these responses comes about when an individual comes face to face with the law of God. How do you know that you are poor in spirit? By the law of God. What causes you to mourn over your sins? The law of God. The law of God is the schoolmaster. The Torah points the individual to their sin and their desperate need of the Savior. And so they who know their plight and that the, the law is perfect, holy, just and good, and they are not. They realize they're poor in spirit. They realize their need. They're spiritually bankrupt. They recognize the reality of their plight and they weep over their transgressions. And then God says, blessed are those who mourn. They no longer are proud and lifted up with arrogance before God. And so they become meek before the throne of God. And as a result of their conversion, they are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which is only found in the Torah. And so, as you hunger and thirst after righteousness, what is the testimony of righteousness but the law of God? And having this law written on our hearts, we become targets of the wicked to gain the title of those who are persecuted. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes certainly bear a close resemblance to the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and David's Psalms. And to be sure... The obedience of the law, the Torah obedience, not only makes a difference in the life and reality of the individual, it almost guarantees a blessed life in spite of the many trials and temptations which life often brings. So you could be perfectly obeying the law of God, but God is still going to mature you. Still you will face trials and persecutions. That's part of the maturation process. But there is always blessedness underscoring and underlining and overarching the individual that obeys Note the absolute declaration of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that follows the law of God. David doesn't say that the man who delights in the law of God might be blessed. And, and that's just something we have to think about. The man who delights in the law of God is blessed. Not that he might be blessed. He truly is blessed. He declares that he is already blessed and will be blessed because he delights in the law of God. In Psalm 1, David underscores the two ways in which a man can go. He can either delight in the law of God, or he can rebel. The one is life, the other is death. The one life is prosperity and peace, the other death and destruction, darkness, blindness, and hell destruction at the end of one's life. Grant calls this idea the idea of the two ways. 
because there's always a choice. And this too is taken from Moses' Deuteronomic theology. Because throughout the scripture, God sets forth the two ways. So, young people, I will tell you this. Pay attention. You can either obey God and be blessed. Or you can rebel. And God will deal with you harshly. But there's only two ways. These are the ways of life or the way of death. Now Moses introduces this idea of the two ways in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, but brings it up throughout his final message to Israel. Notice Deuteronomy 4, 8. And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as this law which I set before you this day? In other words, I'm setting this before you. You're going to choose these commandments or you're not going to choose these commandments. Two ways. Deuteronomy 11, 26 and 32. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing, the one way, and a curse, the other way. And ye shall observe to do all the statutes and judgments which I set before you this day. Either obey or disobey. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Choose the right way that both thou and thy seed may live. Here is the choice for Israel. And what did they do? They chose the wrong way because they were reprobate. In order to remind Solomon of the kingship Torah relationship that he has, the king with the law, God tells him this in 1 Kings 9, 4 and following. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart, and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments. Then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to thy father David, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you. Notice there's that setting before you, the ways of life or the way of death. But go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all the people. And at this house, which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss, and they shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto this land and to this house? The way of life, the way of death. This idea of the two ways is again repeated in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 21, 8, notice, And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. That is what God continues to do. Jeremiah 26, 4 and 44, 10. And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, If you will not hearken to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, there it is, my law, I'm setting it before you. Choose my law. 44.10 of Jeremiah. They are not humbled even unto this day, neither have they feared, nor walked in my law, nor in my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. So here God is saying, choose life, choose life. Now this idea of the two ways is all part of the Deuteronomic theology that God gave to the children of Israel so that it might be passed down through the many generations to God's people wherever they are found whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. To choose life is to choose to follow the law of God. 
as priests and kings of the kingdom, which is who we are, this is our commission. In fact, the adherence to the law of God must become our world and life view. David understood this, and so he writes of the two ways in Psalm 1-6. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Notice, the way of the righteous, the one side, the way of the ungodly, the other side. The two ways. These are dramatically opposite one to another. There's no communication between them. There's no communion between them. David is not only sensitive to the two ways in his relationship to the kingdom law, but his psalm indicates a victorious eschatology. Notice verse 4 and 5 of Psalm 1. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. In other words, they won't be able to, to, to take the judgment of God. The wrath of God is going to be upon them. They're going to be destroyed. Nor sin is in the congregation of the, of the righteous. This is a victorious declaration. David indicates a time when all sinners who follow the way of the ungodly will be destroyed under the judgment of God's throne. The idea that the wicked will be driven away with the wind as chaff identifies the wicked as nothing of any value. They're stubble before God and their time will eventually be no more. And this is David's intention also in Psalm 37, which is an apocalyptic song of Christ's total victory of the wicked. Notice Psalm 37, verse 1 and 2. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Verse 9 and 10. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. Verses 12, 13, and 17. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. Notice verses 20, 35, and 38. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke. They shall be consumed away. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I saw it. Him, but he could not be found. But the transgressions shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. David is assured in these Psalms that God will finally, ultimately, vindicate the just by destroying the wicked. All those who follow the ways of the Lord, who meditate upon his law day and night. And David is assured of this because of the connection between the righteous and the law of God. And so we have to be connected with the law of God meditating upon it day and night. Notice how he slides into the middle of this psalm, these words further solidifying the necessity of delighting in the law of God in Psalm 37, 30, and 31. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. And once again, David borrows from Moses' Deuteronomy, where Moses the lawgiver says this, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, with all thy might. Next we see David going up against all of God's enemies in his quest to establish the kingdom of God and the Davidic dynasty that God has promised him in time and in history. We shall explore that next time when we return to the exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.